Welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. In this podcast, we take a reading from Scripture each day. We look at the background material to that passage and also application for us. Once again, welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. Welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. My name is Devin, and today our text will be from the book of Micah in chapter 2, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 13. So let's read those verses, and then we'll get into it. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster." In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, and their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go. For this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is a difficult chapter to read through nonetheless, just because of the language. I mean, how it's worded, you get a lot of um, kind of like second person quotes kind of thing going on. So it's hard to jump back and forth between all right, who's the narrator? Who is saying what? Who are the false prophets and what are they saying? What what does it all mean? So hopefully today's uh, short little podcast can answer some of these questions. Uh, I'm sure, uh, again, I record the podcast early, so I don't know what's going to be mentioned before my podcast, but so let's do a little bit of introduction to Micah. He's prophesying from the time of Jotham to the time of Hezekiah. So we're looking at approximately a 50-60 year period, depending on what time within Jotham's reign to within what part of Hezekiah's reign he was prophesying. And this is when the kind of the Neo-Assyrian Empire was was rising to power, really starting to persecute uh, the people of Israel and starting to take land and, and that sort of thing. Micah's name means who is like Yah. So we know that he comes from a, uh, you know, maybe we could say a good, strong Jewish family that they give their son a name like this. 
He was from Morasheth Gath, uh, which is about 21 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He grew up around farmers, and so we can see throughout his letters, he really uh, he uh, empathizes with uh, those who don't have money, with the uh, poor, oppressed. More accurately, what we're going to see kind of displayed is, is probably the middle class, not necessarily just the, the poorest of the poor, but he identifies with the uh, middle class and so has empathy for them. The book of Micah is split up into three oracles, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 5, 3 through 5, and then chapters 6 and 7. Each of these oracles kind of beginning with the word hear or listen and all moving from doom to hope. We are in the first cycle. This is chapter 2 that I just read. So uh, we are seeing that Israel has been threatened with exile on account of their sin. The Lord, however, will gather his elect remnant in Jerusalem to survive the Assyrian siege and will become their king. Those are the last two verses that we read in chapter 2. So we are looking at the second half of this first oracle. So let's work through all these verses if if we've got time uh, and and kind of pick out what's being uh, spoken up here. First off, we get prophetic accusation and divine sentence, how they're linked together in common expressions. For instance, in verse 1, he, uh, Micah is speaking of those who are doing evil to his, their fellow people of, of Israel. He says, you plan to do violence in verse 1. And then verse 3, speaking of the Lord, saying, I am planning disaster. So we can see that mirrored, how the evil people plan for violence. But now look, the Lord is planning for disaster in response to you, you doing evil. In verse 2, we read about how these evil people are taking the fields of, of their neighbors but in verse 4, uh, Yahweh relates this to our fields. It's, it's his field, too, that they're taking. So we see a lot of this kind of linked together, this prophetic accusation and the divine sentence or the divine judgment that's going to come along behind it. In verse 2, we see that Micah kind of bases the sin in covetousness. That's the same word being used there that you're going to find in the same Hebrew word that's being used in um the giving of the Ten Commandments. So it's because of their covetousness that they seize fields and houses and take them away. This is not just true of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Uh, here Micah is speaking to, com- to, to Israelites, to their neighboring uh, Israelite family, that they are coveting one another's fields. And, and why that's important, the taking of land, why that's important, is um, because taking someone's land pretty much means subjecting them to servitude. When land is the only thing that you have, yeah, uh, Israel was meant to be set up as kind of a, um, uh, I don't know if commonwealth is the right idea, but this idea that each man is, his, is a free man, is a landowner. And so this, this land that you own is not simply a possession. It's a grant from Yahweh. It is something to keep their families within. So if you take someone's field, you are taking everything that that person has. So fields then were sacred gifts, not just tracts of land. We get this laid out for us in the book of Leviticus in chapter 25. In verse 5, we have an interesting phrase. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. That sounds a bit, um, you know, not vague, but mysterious what's being said here. Well, you get an intermediate agent that's not being expressed. Someone is casting a lot. What are they talking about? Well, if you think back to that Leviticus chapter 
25, you get that when the land's being distributed, distributed, it'll be done by the priests. So maybe we're kind of getting this. It's meant to throw you back to Leviticus 25 and, and think about how the land was divided. But then this phrase here at the end of the verse in the assembly of the Lord is referring to when the land is going to be redispersed again after they come out of the exile. So that that is kind of their hope, what they're looking for, what they're looking forward to. They're um, in time, so to say. So maybe we could uh, press this a little bit and say that this is um, them looking at their future in, in, in the coming in time when God redistributes the land, they will not be a group of people who receive any land. Those people who have uh, taken from their neighbors, who have subjected their neighbors to violence, they will not receive land in, in eternity. Micah recognizes then that the land that's being spoken of here, even though it has been taken from them, is an eternal promise given by God to Abraham. So even if right now we're in exile, even if right now the land isn't ours, Micah understands that, that land will be returned. In the assembly of the Lord, lots will be cast for the land, and we will receive our land back. That's what Micah's looking forward to here. In verse 6, you kind of get this break off now, and all of a sudden we switch to not just the evil political leaders, the evil um, you know, neighbors who maybe were more affluent, had more money, and so were able to oppress their poorer neighbors. So we've switched from just the rich and the ruling class, and now we've moved to false prophets and false teachers. At the beginning of verse 6, you get some of the things that they say. Because Micah has just, in verse 5, kind of announced this destruction or judgment on the rich, you kind of get what the false teachers are saying in response. The false teachers in verse 6 are responding with, hey, don't preach that. Uh, No one should preach these kinds of things. Disgrace will not come upon us. And so you get what is the basis of false preaching is an imbalanced view of God. So here we have false teachers that only want to look at what what God will bless us with. We want to look at the good things. And I love what Bruce Waltke said in his commentary. A badge of false prophets is their distorted preaching on only God's love and never on his wrath and judgment. Preaching half-truths, they lead the populace to death. True prophets must preach the whole counsel of God. That's beautiful. That's perfect. That's what we need to look for in our preachers and teachers. Someone who tries to encompass, even if it's difficult, even if it's time-consuming, even if it requires deep thinking and how to piece it all together, the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that they like, not just the parts that are easy, and not just the things that people want to hear. Because in verse 7, we get the outgrowth of this bad teaching, of these false, half-baked theologies. These half-baked theologies, you get these two kind of pithy sayings in verse 7. Does the Lord grow impatient? Are these his deeds? You see you get these false prophets questioning Micah on his judgment. They're pretty much saying, well, hold on. Isn't, the, isn't God all loving? Isn't he always going to be patient? Surely he's not going to bring about this type of destruction and this type of... Um, judgment. This popular theology is common to us, for one, but was probably built on Israel's famous confession that they confessed together. Uh, In Exodus 34 and verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
something that would have been repeated in, in Jewish households frequently. And we get the same thing, right? We preach and preach and teach and repeat. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We love verses about God's love, but rarely do we focus on and are willing to contemplate the difficult things. What you normally hear is how people uh, don't like churches like that or came up in churches where that's all they heard. And that is the other side of it, isn't it? It's the other side of the scale that's unhealthy. That is a sign of a false prophet. Uh, but, but a true teacher is someone who tries to implement the entire counsel of the Lord. And it's just as dangerous today, those false prophets who apply the doctrines of believers' security to those who disown their Lord and their lifestyles and those who do not bring forth the fruit of repentance from sin. And too often um, we talk about the security and, and how God loves you and, and, and no one can take you from, the, uh, from, from God's hand um, while not having this willingness to recognize disobedience in people's lives. We have this huge reluctance to, to point out unrepentant sin in people's lives. Um, but we know that as, as Christians, that is something we're supposed to do in one another's life. Just because someone points out the sin in my life, I shouldn't assume that, oh, they must be living a perfect life. Or I shouldn't, in turn, point out a sin in their life. Realize that, that is our job, imperfect people correcting other imperfect people. We are all trying to help one another. Uh, rarely can we get that in our minds. Instead, we take offense, we get defensive, and we try to point out um, the speck in our brother's eye. So God's response to all this is, though, that, that, that God prospers the one who walks with him. So, so just because these evil rich rulers are uh, persecuting them, just because false preachers, false teachers are lying to them, God's not just going to be with the victims. That's not what's being said here. God isn't just going to save all the victims because they've been uh, persecuted and because they've believed false teachings. No, it's another difficult teaching here is God is going to prosper the one who walks with him. Just because you've had a tough time in life, just because you may have been persecuted, doesn't automatically invoke, you know, one-way ticket to heaven. No, because what we're going to get here in, in verse 11, which this is kind of a thought that we'll end with here, is Micah turns his message in verse 11 to, to the victims, to the people who have experienced evils from these people, from evil rulers and false teachers. And he accuses them. He doesn't coddle. He accuses. He accuses them of listening to anyone who's willing to tailor their message to them. He says, you'd believe in anybody who's willing to tailor a message to you, who's ever, who, who's ever willing to whisper in your ear, who's ever willing to, uh, as, as the... Verse 11 goes, If a man should go about in utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. Wine and strong drink were indicators of affluence and, and, and money and wealth. And so anyone who is willing to, to give them a gospel of prosperity, they were willing to listen to it. And he accuses them of that. Now what we have to end here, I'm sorry, one last thought, verses 12 through 13. Micah turns... Uh, turns his language to the salvation aspect of this oracle. Like I said, all these oracles move from doom to glory, and here we get the glory. Here is God coming in the picture. And in verse, thir uh, verse 12, he 
paints this picture of a shepherd coming in. And, and first person is speaking, I, I will gather you. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in a pasture. And then moving into verse 13, he's depicted as a leading ram who is going to break down the walls that these sheep are captured behind. And so at the beginning of verse 13, he says, He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass through the gate, going out by it. And here you get some good Hebrew parallelism in that in the very last line of verse of, of verse 13, he says, Their king passes before them. The shepherd that was leading them out, the shepherd that gathered them together is their king. And this king, you read in the next line, is the Lord. Yahweh is king. Yahweh is the shepherd. That's why it's such an important um, account in John chapter 10 when Jesus declares himself the good shepherd who gathers his sheep together. Uh, Jesus making that uh, messianic and divine confession there. Well, I hope today's been a good study. Uh, There's so much to pour into. I did not have enough time to get into everything, so hopefully you will take some time and slowly work through the book of Micah this week as we're going through it on the podcast. I hope you're looking for ways to love and serve your neighbor in genuine and sincere ways. Peace and love.